The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We are continuing our study this morning of 2 John. This brief letter was written for the purpose of reminding the readers of the command to love one another, which he says they had had from the beginning, and also to warn the readers about certain itinerant deceivers. False teachers had arisen in the church who claimed to have a deeper knowledge of the things of God. They claimed to have the secret to knowing Christ, but in reality, they denied His bodily incarnation And his deity. The danger that the church, this is what he's warning him of, that the danger the church might welcome these men into their midst and provide hospitality for them. And we talked about that in the first message about the importance of hospitality, and you know, this was the danger here. They wanted to be hospital, but these people were teaching false doctrine. Listen, this letter is a warning about loving. And being loving and hospitable towards those who say they belong to Christ but teach false doctrine. Did you get that? It's actually a warning about being loving and hospitable towards those who teach false doctrine. Now last week we ended with verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Now I didn't mention this last week, but he says some of your children. It doesn't mean the rest of them were all messed up. I just think he'd heard from some of the children. And the ones he'd heard from, somewhere he ran into these people and they were walking in the truth and it was just very encouraging to him. Now, last time we really stressed this idea of walking in the truth. In my opinion, it would be impossible to overemphasize the importance of divine truth. Yahweh is the God of truth. Yeshua is the truth. Scripture says He is full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. The Scripture is called the Word of God. It's the Word of truth. And the church is called, as we looked last week, the pillar and support of the truth. We live in a world full of lies. I mean, we talked about this earlier this morning. You can't believe anything you hear, even things you see. You know, on video, you can't believe. I mean, our government lies to us. The news media lies to us. The medical community lies to us. Everybody lies to us. And we have to be discerning. We have to be careful. And the church's job is to guard the truth, to uphold it, to defend it, and to proclaim it. And every church needs to be strong in the knowledge of the truth so that its members can avoid destructive heresies. Last week, we talked about abiding, which... John mentions in verse 2, he says, because of the truth that abides in us. Now, I said last week that the truth here is Yeshua. He abides in them. He abides in us. We've talked a lot in 1 John about this subject of abiding. It's the Greek word mano here. It's a very important concept to John. To abide in Christ is to be in an intimate relationship with Him. It's to have fellowship with Him. It's to walk closely with Him in obedience to His Word. Christians, those who know Christ, are exhorted to abide in Him. 
Because this privilege and duty may be, need, may be neglected and very often is neglected by Christians. You cannot abide in Christ if you're not keeping His commandments. John 15.10, Yeshua said, If you keep My commandments, maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you do, you will abide in My love. So the abiding Christian walks in the commandments. We can't really say that we love God if we're not walking in His commandments because love expresses itself in following the divine guidelines. And as I titled this message, Obedience is Love. Now, it's foolish for us to say that we love God and then not keep His commandments. Notice that the word commandment is used four times in verses 4 through 6. He says, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as are writing you a new commandment, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So we can see that keeping the commandments are pretty important. You agree with that? I mean, that's John really stresses that. So the question that should arise, what commandments? Last week in the Q&A after the message, I received a question from Linda that I didn't answer because I said I'd be talking about it today. But she said, we are to follow Yeshua's commands. Are these commands only in the New Testament and or referring to the Ten Commandments? That's an excellent question. One that I often pondered in my early Christian life. Okay, we see that we're supposed to be obedient, we're supposed to follow the Lord, but this is a big book, and is it all these commandments? Is it some of these commandments? And I'm often asked that now. You know, what, how much of the Old Covenant pertains to us? I mean, if we are to obey the commandments, if obedience to the commandments is love, it really helps to know which ones. Does it not? Do we obey the Ten Commandments? Do we obey the Pentateuch? Genesis to Deuteronomy? Do we obey the Levitical laws, the rituals and ceremonies of the Old Covenant? You know, the early church struggled with this question. They had a, a, a church conference in Antioch because they were teaching things that you know the apostles didn't agree with. In Acts 15.5, it says, Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, did you get that? They're believers, but they're Pharisees. You probably know some of them, don't you? So they're believers, but they're Pharisees. It says they rose up and they said, this is what they're teaching Christians. It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So that's what they're telling the believers. Look. Look, you, you, you know, it's nice that you trusted Christ and you got to do that. But now you need to be circumcised. Now you need to keep all the Mosaic law. See, they're saying basically in order to be a Christian, you got to come through the door of Judaism. You got to be circumcised. And then you got to obey the whole law. There's still those in the church who are teaching stuff like this. If you think that's an exaggeration, you maybe need to look around a little bit and see what's going on out there. Now, the rabbis had gone through the Torah 
and codified all the scriptures so that they came up with 613 laws. So, which ones are we to keep? I really like snow crab legs. Okay, I like lobster. I like shrimp. I like oysters. Can I eat them? Not, not according to Leviticus. Leviticus 11, 9 through 10 says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales. Does a lobster have fins and scales? Crab lake? No. He says, Whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it is detestable. <laughs> that's, that's the law, okay? That's the law. Now, the black pelican has great catfish. Can I eat catfish? Does catfish have scales? They do not. Man, I like catfish, and they make it great, okay? All right, let me ask you this. So, okay, our, my seafood diet's just been destroyed. I do like fish, but all right. What about a tattoo? I mean, this is a big now. Everybody wants tattoos, right? So uh, can I get a tattoo? Not according to Leviticus 19.28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead, or tattoo yourselves. I am Yahweh. Now, let me tell you something, believers. If you go through the 613 laws of the Tanakh, you'll find that you're probably breaking most of them. Really. Really. You probably are. So let me ask you this. How much of the Old Covenant is binding on us? <laughs> Just, that's how most people decide. The parts they like, this is binding. The parts they don't. How do we decide? How much of it? First of all, who's the us here? That's us. This is Gentile, right? We Gentiles, you would agree with that? Okay, so how much of it is binding on Gentiles? None. Crickets, good, I'm glad, okay? Because that tells me you're probably going to learn something today. How much of this is binding on Israel? <laughs> so then it's binding on us if we're Israel? No. Oh, wow, we're getting, we're getting heavy, we're getting in weeds. All right. Look at what Yeshua said about the duration of the Old Covenant law. Matthew 5, 17-18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the use of law and the prophets here indicates that what the Lord speaking of in these verses is the whole of the Tanakh, what we call the whole Testament. And if you trace these terms throughout your Bible, you'll find that wherever this expression is used, it includes the whole Tanakh. All 613 laws are in effect until heaven and earth pass away. Now, keep this in mind. Most believers don't think heaven and earth has passed away yet. They see heaven and earth as... The universe, the globe, whatever, it's just everything dissolving, okay? So, so for them, still in effect. The word here, iota, in form is just like an apostrophe, 
Presuming Yeshua originally meant this statement in Hebrew, Iota would stand for the Yod, the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It looks like this. It just looks like an apostrophe. And then the word dot is the little projecting part on the foot of a letter. This is the Hebrew letter bet. And see that little thing sticking out there in the circle? That would be a dot. All right? So here's the message. Not even the smallest part of the law will be abolished until heaven and earth passes away. Now the phrase, until heaven and earth passes away, refers to the duration of the Tanakh's authority. So Yeshua is saying, not a single item in the law will ever be changed until heaven and earth passes away. Is that what he's saying here? Now please notice that the word until occurs twice. And it's the first until that most people ignore. Until this happens, all this is in effect. And like I said, there's a lot of people who think it hasn't happened yet, so then all this law is still in effect. Most of them believe it is. All 613 are still, every bit of this is in effect. Who would be under this 613 laws? Israel. Okay, good. Now let me ask you this. Are all 613 of these laws still being obeyed by those that call themselves Jews or those that call themselves Israel today? Not even close. Okay? Because remember, the heart, the heart of this religion, Judaism, was sacrifice. They have not sacrificed an animal since A.D. 70. So it's different, okay, what they're doing now. That's when Israel stopped doing this. At 87, the temple was destroyed. They haven't sacrificed since. So you see a problem there? They're not keeping this law. And believers, now here's... And if you got questions, please send me the questions. I want to get this clear today because I think this is such an important subject. So many believers are confused on this. Believers, here's what we need to understand. As Gentiles, we are not and never have been under the law. Torah. Okay? Never have been. Look what Paul wrote to the Romans. Romans 2.12 For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now we see here, the law here is Torah. It's the Jewish law of Moses. The writings and the prophets. And he says, all who have sinned without the law. Who's that? Gentiles. Right? Then he says, all who have sinned under the law, that refers to the Jews. So we got Gentiles, we got Jews here. The Gentiles did not have Torah. They had no prophets. They had no biblical writers. They didn't have the written revelation of God, the law of God. Only Israel had this. Look what Paul says in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, Okay, you got that? By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So twice he stresses that Gentiles don't have the law. Gentiles don't have the law. They don't have it. They never had it. Now, look what he says here. He says, when Gentiles who do not have the law, then we have a comma, by nature, do what the law requires. The misinterpretation of this verse has led to great misunderstanding. All right? 
Many see this verse as saying that God has written on the heart of every man a basic moral code. In other words, if you never saw a Bible, if you never heard Christian teaching, if you never heard the gospel, you were living out in the jungle all by yourself, inside you is this basic moral code that you know what to do. All right? The code is similar to things contained in the Ten Commandments. Uh, they would say, you know, you know not to steal. You know not to cheat. You know to tell the truth, to honor your parents, to keep your word, to help the poor, to not kill, so on. This verse is not saying that at all. But here's the problem. The comma's the problem. Okay? Because in the Greek text, there's no commas. Alright? And the key to understanding this translate is translation, because different translations have different, they put the comma in different places. But most of the major translations have missed it here, and their, mis- their mistake has led to a faulty I was like, what the heck? Has led to a faulty view of the innate knowledge of God. All right? Because what it's saying is, by nature, they do what the law... In other words, they just naturally do what the law tells them to do, even though they have the law. They just know it. I think think that doctrine of the innate knowledge of God is false. Okay? I think man left to himself without any kind of outside influence, he doesn't know it's wrong to kill, cheat, steal, and he doesn't even care. All right? The Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, you see the difference in those two? N.T. Wright says this, the phrase by nature goes with the possession of the law. This will be the bottom one. Gentiles who do not by nature have it. They never had the law, okay? He says, not with the doing of the law, which would be up here. They by nature do it. No. He said, that's not right. See, those who do not have the law by nature were Gentiles. And here Paul's distinguishing Jews who are born with Torah and Gentiles who by nature are birthed They didn't have the law. And yet these Gentiles are doing the things of the law. By nature here is from the Greek word phusies. Say phusies. (laughs) All right. That Paul uses this word to refer to the possession of the law, I think is clear from his use of phusies in 2.27. Then he who is physically phusies, uncircumcised, but keeps the law. You see a problem with that? If you're not circumcised, how do you keep the law when the law requires circumcision? You see? Alright? He who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law, and they'd be saying, wait, that's, that's a contradiction. You can't do that. will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Okay, the word physically here is fousies. This is almost identical to the point he makes in verse 14. The physically uncircumcised who keep Torah refers to Gentiles. Okay, they're not circumcised. And you say, well, how do they keep the law? Well, wait a second. This can't refer to people who are naturally or innately circumcised, can it? You can't be innately circumcised, okay? 
It's a physical thing. And that's why by having the law by nature, they don't physically have the law. He's not physically, he's uncircumcised, but yet he's counted as circumcision. How's that happen? We could translate verse 14 as this, to those who do not physically have the law, do the things of the law. How do they do that? How do they keep the law if they're not physically circumcised? Because they're Christians, right? They're in Christ. Christ kept the law perfectly, obediently. You are in Christ. You receive His righteousness. That's how he's talking about these Gentiles, all right, who have done this. So who are these Gentile law keepers? They're Christians. Cranefield says, The view that they are Gentile Christians is found in Augustine and in the earliest Latin commentary which has come down to us. And we could translate it this way. For when Gentiles who by nature do not have the law do what the law requires, these having the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. They don't have the law, but they obey it because they're in Christ. They've trusted Christ. And listen, Paul puts it this way. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteous requirement. In order that, the righteous requirement. Listen, all that the law required, mark this verse down, people, is fulfilled in us. He says, who do not walk according to the flesh. That means we're not walking according to the old covenant law. We're walking according to the new covenant spirit. It's fulfilled in us. So everything the law demanded you do, you've done in Christ. Notice what Paul writes to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9.20 To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Uh, Wasn't he a Jew? Wasn't he a Jew? Yeah, Paul was a Jew. In order to win Jews. To those under the law. Who's that? That's Jews, right? Under the law. He said, I became as one under the law. Now watch what he says in the parentheses. Though not being myself under the law. What? Paul's a Jew. How's he saying he's not under the law? We'll come back to that. That I might win those under the law. That's the Jews. Now to those outside the law. Who's that? Gentiles. I became as one outside the law. Now watch what he says again. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. Gentiles are not under the law, never have been under the law. But many in the church today try to put Christians under the law. I mean, pick one out. They're preaching law. What is the favorite Old Covenant law for preachers to preach? The tithe. Why? Because that benefits them, okay? If I can get you bound up realizing tenth of your income has to come here, then whoa, that's a great thing, right? They teach you're commanded to tithe. In other words, that's give 10% of your income to the church. Now, I read an exchange on Facebook last week in which a man says, if you don't tithe, Christ will destroy you at His coming. I'm like, well, first of all, you missed his coming, but that's okay. He's not going to destroy it. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, tithing is, it, it, and they push it with a vengeance. Listen, people, tithing is taught in the Bible, in the Old Covenant. 
But even in the Old Covenant, tithing was not giving. When God asked the Israelites to give, it was always voluntary. Give whatever God lays on your heart. You just bring whatever. It wasn't that, all right? It wasn't mandatory. Giving was voluntary under the Old Covenant. The tithe was a debt. The tithe is taxation. It's not giving. Just like on April 15th, you don't send the IRS a gift, right? You pay what they mandatory require you pay or you'll go to jail, all right? Old Covenant Israel was a theocracy. That's a government that's ruled by God, mediated through the priests. So the priests are the government. They're carrying out all the things that Israel needed to do, and they needed to be taken care of. So the taxation was to support the government. That's what the tithe was for. It was taxation, and it was mandatory. Also, I think a thing that most people miss here is Israel's tithe wasn't 10%. There were actually three tithes. And one of them was every third year. So it worked out to about 33% that they were actually taxed. Taxation today in our government, unlike Israel, is theft. Okay? Our government is crooked and they're robbing us. They're stealing our money and they're living high off the hog. They're corrupt as they... I better move on here. All right? (laughs) But listen, Israel, the government, was run by the tax. The tithe. That's what it was for. And whenever God wanted to do something extra, He just asked them to give. So giving has always been voluntary. Old covenant, new covenant. That hasn't changed. We just, you know, the taxes change from being a government under God to a government under a bunch of relig- bunch of perverts now who, you know, try to uh, take everything they can from us and give it to other people. So it's just, all right. The believers that Paul is writing to had not seen the parousia yet. All the all the Bible was written prior to AD 70. So when they're writing, the Pharisee hadn't happened. So they're before that. So weren't they still under the law? All right, here's what I want you to get. There is an event, another event, which ended the law on an individual level before AD 70. So Yeshua's saying... Every bit is binding until heaven and earth pass away, but there is an exception clause here. What event happened that made the law null and void? Salvation. Personal salvation. All right, now watch what Paul says here in Romans 7, okay? Or do you not know, brothers? I'm speaking to those who know the law. So who's he talking to? Those who know the law. Who's that? Jews, okay. The you here is plural, and he's referring to the Jewish believers. You know the law. And he says, you know this, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Does that make sense? Yes. Total sense, right? Okay. Who are you, any of you worried about laws after you're dead? No, okay, so you don't. Now, now he's going to give us an illustration. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. 
But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. All right, now let me just throw this in here in case you're confused. This is not the only grounds for divorce. There's several grounds for divorce, biblically, okay? And the issue in the Old Covenant, especially get your writing of divorcement to prove that you're, you're free from that person. But he's saying, okay, here's how the marriage law is. As long as your husband's alive, then, you know, you're under that law. If he's dead, guess what? You're free, okay? No problem. Now, likewise, okay, he's making a comparison. My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Paul draws an inference from the previous illustration. And that's denoted by the you also. He says, just like a husband died in the previous verse, you also have died. Believers, you've died. It's a passive indicative. In other words, you were made dead to the law. The passive voice points to the sovereign, gracious work of God, applying the work of Christ to them regarding the reign of sin and the jurisdiction of the law. It points back to us having become united with Christ in His death. Listen, the law had no jurisdiction over any believer after Pentecost. The Jewish believers were free from the law through the body of Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter goes to Antioch. Antioch was the headquarters for the Gentile church. So it's mostly Gentile. There were Jews there, but mostly Gentile. And Peter goes down there, and he's having ham sandwiches and crab legs with the Gentiles. And he is loving it. Well, wait a minute. The, the parousia hadn't happened? So the law is still binding every bit of it, right? But Peter knows now I'm free from it because I died to it. And I can eat what I want. Well, then it says some brothers from James came down. See, James is from the Jerusalem church. And in the Jerusalem church, things are run differently. Because it's all Jews up there. And you don't want to offend the people you're trying to reach out to. So they kept the law as a sense of you know being able to witness. So these guys from James come down to Antioch, and Peter's like, oh my, I'm, I'm, I'm torn here. I don't. So he separates from his Gentile friends, um, I, I don't eat that stuff, I can't eat a ham sandwich. And he goes and sits with the Jews, and Paul has to come down and say, you big hypocrite, what are you doing? Can you imagine what it would be like to confront Peter? I'm talking about the guy who walked on water, Okay. The guy who was preaching at Pentecost. This is a heavyweight. And Paul gets him right in his face and says, you're a hypocrite, man. You can't do this stuff. You're hurting the Gentiles. They, they're not under any law. So the law for believers was over, but it was still in effect for all those Jews until AD 70. So the law, the believers are free from it through the body of Christ. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.20, to the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Watch what he says. Though not being myself under the law. Why isn't he under the law? Because he's a Christian. And that he's free from that. See, during the transition period, Old Covenant Judaism is still in effect. The Jews were still under the law. They're still taking sacrifices. They're still going through all the ritual. But if you trusted Christ, 
and you were a believer, you're not under it anymore. You're under the new covenant. You're under the blood of Christ. All right, so the law, again, Gentiles never, never under the law, unless they converted to Judaism, of course. They'd go through, they'd be a Jewish convert, they'd go through the thing, and then, of course, they came under the law because they converted to Judaism. Now they had it because they could get it from the Jews. All right, back to Matthew 5, 17. Until heaven and earth pass away. If heaven and earth refers to the literal heavens and earth, guess what? Then the law is still in effect for Jews, right? Hadn't passed away. What's the problem with that? <laughs> First of all, as we said earlier, um, Jews haven't kept the Torah since AD 70. They reinvented Judaism totally. Took out the sacrifices, took out the priesthood, took out the genealogy. Let's keep on worshiping God and let's make up stuff as we go along. That's what they're doing. And people, there are no racial Jews today, which means there can be no priesthood. And without a priesthood, you can't offer sacrifices. According to the law, if you've sinned, you have to offer a sacrifice, according to Numbers 15. But you can't because there's no priest. When is the last time Israel offered a burnt offering? Prior to AD 70. They've never done it since. You say, well, that's part of their religion. Why didn't they keep on going? Why didn't they, why did they stop? God stopped it. God said, you're done. I'm done with Judaism. I'm done with Israel. You're, and he made it clear. Let's say that someone wanted to keep the Jewish law. Let's say they had an animal for the sacrifice. Where would they find a legitimate priest? Numbers 3, 5 through 7 says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. So you had to be a Levite to be able to do this. this is a special class of qualified ministering priests chosen from the tribe of Levi. If you can't find the Levitical priest, you can't keep the law. And listen, when the temple was destroyed, all genealogical records were destroyed. So there's no way you can prove your tribe. So there's no way you can have a priest. The writer of Hebrews said this, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest? He's referring to Christ, the other priest. To arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. This parenthetical statement, for under it, the people received the law, is a reminder of the close interdependence between the priestly and legal systems. Under it, is literally on the basis of it. The law and the priesthood belong together for the simple reason that since the law represented the divinely ordered standard of conduct and character, it was universally broken according to Romans 3. There's a continuous necessity for the ministry of reconciliation, which the Levitical priesthood provided, even though imperfectly. The writer is saying that the Mosaic Law was given in order to validate the Levitical priesthood. If the Levitical priesthood is taken out of the Mosaic Law, nothing of meaning is left. Why? Because the whole purpose of having a religious system is to bring people into a personal relationship with the living God. If there's no priest to represent the people, there's no reason to have a religious system. It's very important that we understand what the writer is communicating in this verse. The concept is that the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law are inseparable. 
If someone wanted to incorporate the Mosaic Law into their religious system today, they would also have to incorporate the Levitical priesthood because it was the basis for the Mosaic Law. If there's no Levitical priesthood today, then the law can't be obeyed. And all our sinners, if heaven and earth, have not passed away. Again, most of the church lives under this, the heaven and earth have not passed away. Well, then all this law is still in effect, but how come no one's doing it? It's all still in effect, but nobody's obeying it. If we take heaven and earth in the literal sense, then the law would have to still be in effect, but it's not. Well, either Yeshua's wrong here, heaven and earth is not to be taken in a literal sense. And if you're familiar with the Tanakh, you'll understand that this is not literal language. If you want to know what a term means in the New Testament in relation to prophecy, you need to go back to the Tanakh and see what it meant there. If it was used in a certain way in the Tanakh, wouldn't it make sense that Yeshua and the New Testament writers would use those expressions in the same way? We need to get our understanding of heaven and earth from the Tanakh. In biblical apocalyptic language, heavens and earth refers to rulers and governments. The earth refers to nations of people. And this can be seen in the book of Isaiah, can be seen all through the Tanakh. All right, so we've seen that the Old Covenant law with its 613 laws is not in effect now for anybody. Because heaven and earth, the Old Covenant system, have passed away, and so has the Mosaic law. So as believers, we are not under the Old Covenant law. We are under the law of Christ. According to Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me ask you something. If you were bearing another's burden, what would that mean you were doing to that person? You'd be loving them, right? Okay, so if I'm loving another one, what am I doing? I'm fulfilling the law of Christ. All right? Because the law of Christ is the law of love. We're to love Yahweh and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are under the laws of the new covenant. Look at Romans 8.2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Yeshua from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life is Torah of the Spirit. This introduces us to a new facet of Torah. This is new covenant Torah. Paul says that the Torah of the Spirit has set you free. And these using here Exodus language, set you free. Those in Christ are brought out of Egypt of sin and death and made citizens of the kingdom of God. Through the death of Christ, all believers become dead to the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was the old covenant. We're under the law of love. When Yeshua was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did He tell them? Now remember this. They're under 613, right? And some guy comes to Yeshua and he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Why did he ask that? Because the Jews rank the commandments. This is greater, this is lesser. If this is greater, you do it before you do this, okay? In other words, you are, if you love your neighbor, you're to get his ox out of the ditch if it falls in the ditch. But we also have a law that says you can't work on the Sabbath, so which do I do? Well, they said the Sabbath law was greater, some schools. Other schools said, no, loving your neighbor is greater. So they battle over these things. So they come to Yeshua and say, what's the greatest commandment? Tell, tell us what's the top. we got 613. Give me one to keep, okay? Help me out here. All right, well, he gave him two to keep, all right? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great 
and the first commandment. There's number one, all right? A second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch what he says. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Now we talked about law and prophets. What's it mean? The whole Tanakh. Yeshua boiled down all 613 commands. He said, love God, love your neighbor. That's all you got to do. See, the Ten Commandments is simply a list of the way you can demonstrate that you love God and love your neighbor. You love God so you don't make an idol. You love God so you don't worship any other God. You love God so you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. You love your neighbor so you don't covet what he has. You love your neighbor so you don't kill him. You don't steal his stuff. You don't commit adultery. That's all about love. We understand that, right? If you love your neighbor, guess what? You probably won't kill him, right? If you love God, you won't love other gods, all right? All right, believers. The old covenant law has passed away. It is gone. So when someone asks, what are we under as far as the Tanakh? Can we get a tattoo? Can we eat shellfish? It's gone. You're free. You're under the law of Christ. In the New Testament, go in there and find out what Christ wants from you. Let me tell you, you know what He wants. He wants you to love. But you go in the New Testament, you find out, how do I love Him? Oh, I don't steal from Him? Oh, I don't kill Him? Oh, I put, I esteem Him better than myself? Listen, Christ reinstituted nine of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. Which one did He leave out? The Sabbath. He didn't say anything about the Sabbath. Why? Because that's a ritual law that is gone. Christ is our Sabbath rest. All right? And believers, we don't have to be confused today about what's permissible behavior and what is not. We simply need to become familiar with the New Testament, the law of Christ, and we'll know how it is we are to live. All right, now with that as an introduction, let's look at our text this morning. I'm not joking. (laughs) 2 John 1.5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And now, this is a logical link to verse 4. This has a slight adversative force, like, but now. See, John's readers are already walking in the truth. He's already told them that. But now he's stressing obedience the more because there's threats coming. Dear lady here is a reference to the local church. We said he's writing to a church. And he says that he is not writing a new commandment. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment. And he may have the sense here that I'm not giving you something I came up with. Not something new. I'm not telling you to do some new thing. Because the false teachers were parading their knowledge as new revelation. We got something new for you. Some secret knowledge. They claim to have new truth. So John is kind of countering this and he's saying, this is not new. This is the stuff you had from the beginning. And one of the charges he makes against the opponents when we get to verse 9 is he said, they go ahead and don't abide in the teaching of Christ. So he's anchoring this commandment. He goes, this is not new. He may be stressing his message is one that has been from the beginning. It's not an innovation. As the Christological teaching of these false teachers is an innovation. Now, He says, one that we've had from the beginning. This is an imperfect, active, indicative, which refers to the beginning of Yeshua's teaching. We had this since Yeshua started teaching. All right? 
which to John's readers would go back to whenever they became a Christian and heard the message. This is what they heard, part of this message. The content of the commandment is reaffirmed here that we love one another. That's the command. This is a present subjunctive form of the verb we love, indicating that he has in mind ongoing love for fellow believers. This is what you heard. This is the last of six references in Yeshua's command to his disciples that they should love one another found in the letters of John. Six times he says this. It's important. And he says, loving others is not a new command. Yeshua taught his disciples this in John 13. They're in the upper room. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, the command to love one another was nothing new. Because the Israelites were taught this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm Yahweh. And when he says that, I'm Yahweh. In other words, you better listen to me because I'm God telling you this, okay? So love is nothing new. I mean, you could sum up, as we just said, Yeshua summed up the old covenant, love God, love your neighbor. So love is not a new command. So how does he say, how does Yeshua say, a new commandment I give you? Well, here's the new part. Just as I have loved you. Ooh. See, the sacrificial work of Yeshua on the cross of Calvary is the new standard for Christian love. They had seen His love for them during His earthly ministry. And most recently, in the upper room, He had washed their feet. But they're going to only understand this depth through the cross. I will sacrificially die for you because I love you. So the new commandment of Yeshua was the old command for the author and his readers. And it was something his readers had heard long ago when they first received the gospel. You know, when we talk about love, it's, it's difficult, I think, in our culture because, boy, love is really messed up concept for us. You know, we think of it, I think, on an emotional level. We think of love as being a feeling that somebody, you know, so I get some supernatural enablement because I feel all these goosebumps about you and then I do nice things for you. But love is defined in Scripture, not in an emotional essence. It's an act of the will. It is to determine to treat people the way God treats you. And the reason we can do this is because Christian love is not an affection. It's an attitude. It's a, it is manifest in our actions, listen, not our affections. Most people react on an emotional level. All right? And we're all guilty of this. Somebody, Something is said to you, something is done to you, and you get hurt. Boy, in our society, you get hurt over everything. We need safe spaces, okay? And we've all had this experience. I'm talking about genuine hurt, okay? But the problem comes when we allow ourselves to react to that on an emotional level. And it's our emotions that dictate our actions. John is saying that Christian love is where God's truth regulates your attitude. And that attitude regulated by God's truth determines your actions. In other words, here's what the Bible says us to do. Oh, that, let me do that. You know, because often our natural reaction is to hate. It's to retaliate. It's to get even. At least mine is. Okay? Maybe you're different. Yet Christ tells us to turn the other cheek. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. <laughs> Now, if you're thinking, you may be thinking, that's impossible. 
And it is in our own strength. But when we abide in Christ, we walk in the Spirit and we are enabled to walk in love, to walk as He walked. 1 John 2, 6, if we abide, we say we abide in Him, we're to walk the way He walked. So to walk in truth means that we walk in love. Paul told us in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's love. And in verse 6 he says, and this is love. That we walk according to His commandments. Now the author explains what love consists of. Obedience to God's commands. In 1 John 5.3 he virtually said the same thing. For this is the love of God that you keep His commandments. This is a Hina clause, and it's referent. The Hina clause is epexegetical to the preceding phrase. In other words, it explains what the love of God consists of. This is what the love of God consists of, that we keep His commandments. So, believer, it's easy for us to test our love for God. How do we do that? How committed are we to being completely obedient to His will? Because if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you're going to have just this warm feeling about me. You just tingle every time you think of me. No. You'll obey me. Christians express their love for God by obeying His commandments, especially by loving one another. How much you love the Lord is directly related to how much you obey His commandments. Now, John no doubt had words of Yeshua in his mind when he said this. Yeshua said in John 14, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In John 14, 15-31, Yeshua makes similar statements about love for Him and obedience to Him over and over. Three times in these verses, Yeshua said, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. This means that Yeshua neither assumes His followers will love Him, or assumes they do not, but if they do love Him, they'll keep His word. Now, I hear a lot from reading things about, you know, there's homosexual churches out there. Okay, they have their own church. And they say they believe in God. And I, I can't question that. They, they could believe in God. They could have trusted Christ. But I can tell them this. If you're practicing homosexually, you're not loving God. You cannot love God and do what He says is wrong. You can't do it with sin and say you love Him. The same thing with, we could go on and on. Okay, an alcoholic. I love God. No, if you're an alcoholic, you're not loving God because drunkenness is wrong. We could go on and on. We demonstrate our love not by what we say. And oh, so many people will say, they don't even know God. Oh, I love God. Not according to the Bible. If you're brave enough to say that to them and they want to know why, you can pull out a scripture and show them some things. Because this is what these commands in the New Testament are for. Because this is how you love your neighbor. So if someone is not living in obedience to Christ's teaching, do they love Him? No. Love is not a feeling. It's obedience to the revealed will of God. Listen, believer. If you don't obey the Word of God, you don't love God. It doesn't matter what you say. Alright? So you really shouldn't be singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. Unless you're living in obedience to His teaching. Loving God consists of keeping His commandments. You say, wasn't well, that legalistic uh, to obey God? I don't think so. We're not talking about how you get saved here, people. We're talking about honoring God by your life. All right? 
The commands of God are simply the manifestations and the definitions of how you love. That's what the commands are. Here's how to love. Every command in Scripture tells you how to honor God. Every command that is directly connected to the relationship between a believer and God is an expression of love to God when obeyed. That's why Paul in Romans 13 says, Love is the fulfilling of the law. That's what the law is all about. Loving. We love in truth. That is to say, our love is defined by our obedience to Scripture. When I'm obedient to those commandments that relate to God, I'm loving God. When I'm obedient to those commands that relate to others, I'm loving others. I'm fulfilling the law. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Now, hopefully the question comes up, okay, how do I do this? How do I obey the commandments? How do I love Him more? How do I obey these commandments? I mean, where do I get a greater capacity to love the Savior? How do I abide in Christ? Well, the only way you'll get it is by dwelling on God's love for you to begin with. And God's love is manifest in the Word of God. And that's our problem today. We're ignorant of the Word of God, and therefore we don't know how to love God, because we don't even know what the Bible says. We need people to be saturated with the Bible. As we are, we will see God who He is. We'll understand His attributes. We'll understand His character. And we'll understand the great love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father. You know, people may think that reading through the Bible a year is just some huge task. Oh, that's just legalism. Getting to know your God is legalism? Why do we read the Bible? If you're reading it just to check it off, then yeah, that's just legalism. But if you're reading it to get to know your God, that's what it's all about. You know, in theory, it takes... 15 to 20 minutes a day to read through the Bible in a year. I love it when people say, I just don't have time. Let me sit down with you. I'll find some time for you, okay? I'll show you how many stupid things you're doing during the day that you could use, you know, for something better. And it's funny, these same people who don't have time to read the Scripture are the same people who think a 30-minute television show is way too short, okay? People, the problem is we fill our lives with secular things, And we neglect to spend time in His Word. And then we wonder why we're not walking as He walked. Well, we don't know how He walked if we're not spending time in the Word of God. He says, he ends verse 6, he says, you should walk in it. It's not about just knowing this stuff. We're to be walking in obedience to His commands and thus demonstrating that we love Him and we love our neighbor. The word commandment, as I said when we started this, occurs four times in verses 4 through 6. The word truth occurs five times in these verses. And the word love occurs four times in these verses. Truth, love, and obedience to the commands all go together. When you walk in truth, you're walking in His truth, and you're walking in the commands, you're loving when you are walking in those commands because you're doing the purpose of the commands is to tell you, how do I love my brother? What do I not do to him? If you're not walking in obedience to the commands, you don't love God. And that's not me saying that. That's the Bible saying that. So take it up with the Word of God, okay, if you've got a problem with that. And that's why I entitled this message, Obedience is Love. Because when I'm striving to love my... when I, I know what the Scripture says, 
And then I got to do it, okay? And when I strive to do what the Scripture says towards my brother and towards my God, I'm abiding in Christ. I'm walking in love. I'm, I am being obedient and I'm actually loving God and loving my brother. People, it's really not all that difficult if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're abiding in Christ. The problem is we're so often not. We're so often going our own way, doing our own thing, we view God more as a life preserver when we start drowning. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity, Lord, to look at your word. I pray I've handled it correctly and accurately this morning. And I pray, Lord, for everyone who hears this message that they would not believe what I'm saying, Lord, but they would study it for themselves. Understand what the word of God says. Thank you, Father, for your incredible grace to us. Amen. Isn't it exciting that we're free from the law? Zoe? Um, so you give me, like, a task to do it, or, like, you tell me to go do something and I don't do it, does that automatically mean I don't love you? I would say that's an indication, yes. I mean, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying you don't have a feeling of affection, but when you really love, you will, okay, I love you, so you ask me to do this, I'll do this for you, because I love you. So if you tell me to go jump off a bridge and I don't do it, I don't love you? That's right. Oh, my God. No, but oh. if he tells you to jump off a bridge, he doesn't love you, so yeah. Right. That that's the that's the problem there. Okay. The thing is we're we're not talking about, you know, we're talking about things that, you know, are right, are normal. You know, when a parent tells their kid to do something that's wrong, the child's under no obligation to do what's wrong. Alright? We're to do, we're to obey as long as the we're to obey God first of all, and man secondly. Jeff? So there's this fine line, and there's some weird people out there. You, well, you may not have seen because you don't play around on social media. So I try okay, not they, to. But in talking about the Gentiles not being under the law, of course, there are scriptures that say that sin is breaking the law. And so then there are some crazy people who don't seem to have read the Romans 2.12, that people without the law can sin. But they say there's not been a sinner since 87, because there's been no right. law since 87. So therefore, there's no law, there's no sin. Is that true? Is that, no, believe me, it's not true. Um, and I've heard that teaching, you know. And to me, here's what that is, all right? Uh, this may be harsh, but if you have an immoral lifestyle, they come up with a doctrine that makes it okay. See, sin, we don't sin anymore. So guess what? I can do what I want. I don't have to treat my neighbor with love. I can do whatever I want to my neighbor. I don't have to do anything. I can do whatever I want because there's no sin. Well, as Jeff just said, the Bible says they sin without the law. Okay? We still sin. You know you sin. And the commands of Christ are given in the New Testament and all believers are under the law of love. All of us. And so when you violate the law of love, whether towards God or towards your neighbor, you're wrong. And it's destructive. But there's a doctrine out there for everything that will fit every cause and whatever. But I think that's a destructive doctrine. All right? Because if you tell people, you know, you can do what you want. And we don't love our neighbors, then we don't love God. And listen, it puts us under, we're definitely not abiding in Christ, and it makes life miserable. Because I'll tell you this, if you obey God, life is a whole lot better. He's made it that way, okay? It's just, you. the more you obey, the better life is. So, it's your choice. I mean, you definitely can live in sin if you want to. Gary? Um, I forgot. I, mean, I just wanted to say something. No. 
a while ago, um, if anyone has ever like looked at the Satanic Bible, their whole motto is "Do as thou wilt." That's like the whole push of the Satanic Bible is do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good. But you can tell that obviously that's the opposite of what God wants us to do, which is to care about other people before ourselves. Yeah, Satan is not about what you can say, it's about It's self. about doing right. whatever well, I agree you with want. That. And so this right. thing about I can do whatever I want, well, that's sin because you're hurting other people in the process. Well, think about this. I mean, lying is in the category with almost every list of sin in the New Testament. Look at our world, our country. Well, the you're right, Sharon. I mean, that's again. If you love your neighbor, are you going to lie to him? No. Why? Because that's not very. That's not a good thing to do. It's all about love, people. It all, Gary? It all stems from getting away from the scriptures. People, I mean, they they've thrown the Bible out, thrown God out of every. Uh, Organization out of school and stuff like that. They don't teach sin anymore. No, they don't. They they teach sin. They teach they sin as this is what's good. Yeah. All right. All right. I got a question. Who is defined as my brother? Well, <laughs> people try to escape. You know, the uh, they're not my brother. I don't have to obey them. Listen, I got a message on that. Who's my brother? Go online and look that up, all right? Because the brother is the person that has a need. Anyone with a need that you can meet is defined as your brother biblically. Sharon. So that, I think, has been modified in the New Testament because according to Leviticus 19.18, which you had up there, um, he was telling the Israelites to love their own people. So their brother would have been fellow Jew, Hebrew. But he also taught Israel to love the foreigner as well yeah. as the people. So it included everybody. But I mean, if you go to Yeshua's teaching on the Good Samaritan, he explains who it is. The Good Samaritan is the person who sees a need. He saw the man laying on the side of the road. He helped that man. That is what loving your neighbor is. And that's who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is anyone with a need. You see it, you meet it. That's loving them. 